IO9 presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 30 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hi, I'm John Joseph Adams. I'm the editor of several anthologies, such as Wasteland and the Living Dead. Um, my latest books are uh, Brave New Worlds, The Way of the Wizard, and The Living Dead 2. And I'm also the editor of Lightspeed Magazine and Fantasy Magazine. And I'm David Barr Kirtley. Uh, my short fiction appears in books such as New Voices in Science Fiction and Fantasy the Best of the Year. And my newest stories are Cats in Victory and Lightspeed, The Skullface City in The Living Dead 2, and Family Tree in The Way of the Wizard. And today on the show, we'll be interviewing Jennifer Wallet. Uh, she's the author of three popular science books, uh, Black Bodies and Quantum Cats, Tales from the Annals of Physics, The Physics of the Buffyverse, and her most recent book, The Calculus Diaries, How Math Can Help You Lose Weight, Win in Vegas, and Survive a Zombie Apocalypse. Uh, her work has appeared in the Washington Post, Discover, Salon, Nature, and Physics Today, and she maintains a general science and culture group blog called Cocktail Party Physics. Uh, and for the past three years, she's been the director of the Science and Entertainment Exchange, an initiative of the National Academy of Sciences aimed at fostering creative collaborations between scientists and entertainment industry professionals. Okay, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Jennifer Wallet. Thanks for joining us on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, okay, so first of all, uh, your books are full of references to fantasy and science fiction. So uh, how did you get interested in fantasy and science fiction, and what are some of your favorite examples? You know, I think that it started when I was a kid. I, I fell in love with horror, actually, first and foremost. Um, so I guess, I, yeah, I think probably this, the, the uh, fantasy side came first. I was a big fan of werewolves, uh, you know, the, the films, the old classic I Was a Teenage Werewolf film. And I was, loved these anthologies called Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And they were just full of these short stories, including one about Jack the Ripper. That ha was my first encounter with the unreliable narrator. <laughs> Uh, so it kind of it kind of like opened my eyes to this whole like rich fantasy world, and over time, I think I moved into science fiction that way. Um, starting with the fantasy and with the horror, um, I became a fan of like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but also loved things like Battlestar Galactica and loved Connie Willis's books and you know Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and all those classic works. Uh, so it seems like every time the term quantum mechanics comes up, uh, somebody mentions the movie What the Bleep Do We Know? Um, oh, yes. So are you familiar with that movie? And uh, like, what do you think of that? I'm not a fan. I, I, that's uh, unfortunately the uh, an example of quantum mechanics being deliberately misused and misunderstood. Um, I actually know one of the men, uh, a, 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 a philosophy of science professor at Columbia, David Albert, is one of the people who's featured in that film. And I think he went on kind of a warpath when that film came out because they edited him in such a way that he seemed to be agreeing with their premise when in fact he deliberate, you know, he directly contradicted it. There is this whole movement of people, I think, who misunderstand uh, quantum mechanics as having something to do with like a universal consciousness and all these sorts of things. And it means they start saying things like water molecules have feelings and you can actually, you know, change the state of something by thinking about it. That is not what quantum mechanics says. Uh, so, uh, Articles like What the Bleep uh, do a lot of damage in terms of scientific literacy. Okay, so uh, many of the claims that you hear made about the scientist Nikola Tesla sound like science fiction, and he even appeared as a mad scientist doing experiments in matter teleportation in Christopher Nolan's film The Prestige. Uh, what are right. some? <laughs> uh, so, what's the you know what's the real story when it comes to Tesla and his work? Well, he was he was a man way ahead of his time. I mean, he overstated the case for many things, but. Um, he had a lot of ideas that were considered absolutely insane. And let's face it, in his later years, he was a little crazy. He was definitely eccentric. You know, he was very OCD, um, you know, didn't like women with pearl earrings and all these various things. But uh, his ideas, his concepts, particularly when it came to wireless transmission and wireless uh, transmission of energy in particular, it turned out to be more challenging, I think, than he anticipated. But in fact, just a few years ago, people did, scientists did finally achieve the transmission of energy across, you know, wirelessly without cords. It's now, you know, possible to conceive of a future where you could charge your cell phone from across the room. You won't have to plug it into an outlet. You get all huge energy losses when you do that. 
but uh, you can do it. And the other thing I think that uh, Tesla really understood was resonances. Uh, he understood, you know, that these vibrations, you know, if they were in sync, if they if they could resonate with like, the natural resonant frequency of something, it's kind of like the um, the Memorex commercials that shatter a wine glass. Uh, he understood that you could do that at a large scale and you could actually cause, say, the Tacoma Narrows Bridge to crumble. <laughs> and we've actually seen these sorts of phenomena uh, since his time. But at the time, people thought he was crazy. Did he look like David Bowie? <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know if he looked like David Bowie, but he, you know, he was very striking. He was tall and thin and he deliberately wore platforms to make himself look even taller. And, you know, he just had that sort of aristocratic look to him. I think he was a showman, first and foremost. He knew how to wow people, particularly in his younger years. He'd put on these amazing shows and a couple of the tricks that he did with electricity, people haven't, still don't know how he did them. Um, he just, he, you know, he knew how to like hold a ball of energy, of, of lightning in his hand. You know, how do you do that? I don't know. And did he have sort of this rivalry with Thomas Edison? Yes, that was nasty. Edison does not uh, does not come off well in that story. Um, it was about uh, alternating current versus direct current, and this was a case where you know Tesla actually had the better idea of, of alternating current. It's, it's what we use for power transmission today. Um, but Edison had already invested uh, in direct current, and so he did everything he could to destroy Tesla and Tesla's partner, business partner, so that he could, get, you know, get a, including electrocuting small animals. And that was just a way of turning the public against AC current so that, you know, his, his corporations would succeed. It's unfortunate. I mean, I think it's a, a cautionary tale of what happens when you let, you know, economic and corporate interests and politics interfere with science, because really the better system, you know, in a pure idealistic meritocracy should win out. And that was altering current. And it did win out, but Tesla never saw any money from it. Uh, so you mentioned Buffy the Vampire Slayer earlier, uh, and you also wrote a book called The, the Physics of the Buffyverse. So uh, how did you go about getting that book published? Well, it, it was written on the heels of the first book. Uh, in the Black Bodies book, I was trying to find a way to make um, material that had been covered a lot before uh, in popular science fresh. So I tried to put physics back into the broader culture, and I found, you know, film, TV, literature, plays, all these things as ways of referencing. Um, and I realized very quickly, um, I was a big Buffy fan, that I could think of an example from the Buffyverse for a whole bunch of them. So I thought it would be possible, you know, to write an entire book about physics in the Buffyverse. It wouldn't necessarily be our physics, uh, but you're dealing with a fictional world. Anytime you're dealing with a world building, so long as the rules are self-consistent, those rules are the physics, the rules that govern that particular fictional universe. So I felt it was possible. Several uh, physicists of my uh, acquaintance were very skeptical and dared me that I wouldn't be able to write it, and the result is I did. <laughs> Uh, were you at all influenced by Lawrence Krauss's Physics of Star Trek? Yeah, yeah. Obviously, it was it was modeled on that. And I think Lawrence was one of the first people to do that sort of pop culture and science tie-in. Um, Star Trek, I think you can, you can tie, make more direct ties with real-world physics. Um, you can be less metaphorical in your approach just because it's just such a techie heaven. <laughs> and... Uh, Particularly these days, you can point to lots of technologies that were science fiction uh, when the series first premiered, that now we actually use versions of that. You know, our flip-up cell phones are those communicators. You've got, you know, versions of the holodeck in development. Um, you've got um, whatever the thing is, McCoy, the tricorder, the medical tricorder. Uh, you've got versions of that in development. It doesn't look exactly like it did on the show, but... So many young people were inspired by that show to become scientists, and they went on to invent the things that they thought were really cool from Star Trek. I think it's a wonderful example of science fiction actually leading to real-world science and vice versa. Okay, and so the book list review of that book mentions that you explore the ins and outs of vampire physiology. Uh, so tell us, what are some of the ins and outs of vampire physiology? Well, I think I focused on things that had a physics basis. So I focused on things like night vision. Um, but, you know, one, uh, which is unusual. I mean, they, they would basically be heat-seeking predators. They would, they would be able to, you know, hunt in various ways, you know, through smell, through being able to see in the dark and things like that. So they would have the equivalent of, like, night vision goggles. Um, the other thing that's interesting, I mean, and this is common knowledge, I think, among vampire fans, there are certain physiological diseases and conditions that have parallels to vampirism. Uh, the most famous is porphyria. 
uh, the most extreme cases of porphyria, which are extremely rare. You have uh, very, very extreme sensitivity to sunlight. You actually, over time, um, get an, an appearance that looks very, very much like the classic Nosferatu, uh, where the, the lips and the gums recede and you end up getting a fang-like, you know, skull-like look to the face. And it's uh, been said, I mean, the legend had it that people, had, you know, who had this disease could treat it by drinking blood. That's actually not true because the acids in your stomach dissolve the blood. Um, you know, they eat away at the things that you need in the blood. But in fact, you can get blood transfusions and you can find ways, you know, to actually treat that disease. And blood is the key. Blood is the life. <laughs> so <laughs> there is something to the vampire legends, um, but it tends to be an, an accumulation of all these various real world diseases that kind of over time, people didn't understand them and therefore assigned this supernatural uh, feature to them. Um, okay, so tell us a little bit about your involvement with the Science and Entertainment Exchange. Yeah, I just recently stepped down um, after two years of heading up this program. It's a wonderful program. It's uh, started two years ago by the National Academy of Sciences, which, if you don't know, was founded by Abraham Lincoln. Um, it's it's an independent body uh, that's essentially there to give you know, unbiased scientific advice to the government, regardless of political orientation. And one of the things they care deeply about is education and outreach. Um, you know, how can we get people excited and appreciative of science? How can we change some of the images, negative images of science that has you know, appeared, particularly, I think, in the 1950s B-movies, uh, science fiction B-movies? You had, like, the mad scientist and um, all these various uh, tropes. They were always wearing white lab coats. Um, I do think that's changing, and the exchange essentially tries to build a grassroots community. They put scientists together with writers, directors, producers, and put them in a room together and let them brainstorm and come up with cool new ideas for series, for plots, for things like that. Um, we've worked with Marvel, for instance, on Iron Man 2 and Thor and the Avengers. Uh, we've worked with Caprica. We've worked with um, various other uh, shows out there. So... I think that this is a great time to be doing that because Hollywood, I think, has realized that science sells, that science is cool, and it's a great resource for them for interesting characters, new twists on old plots, a fresh take on an old genre. And the scientists, in turn, I think like it because it's a way of reaching a very broad audience and getting the word out that scientists are not necessarily, you know, geeks and nerds and mad scientists. You still get that. Walter Bishop on Fringe, classic mad scientist. In fact, they're playing on that stereotype. Uh, Big Bang Theory, you have the classic nerds, and they're playing on those stereotypes. But you've also got people on Bones and CSI and Numbers and a lot of these, and Eureka and a lot of these other shows where you get much more diversity in how scientists are portrayed. And I think that can only be a good thing. Could you give an example of like what a, ch a specific change was to a movie um, as a result of the exchange? Um, well, uh, in Iron Man 2, since that one's out... Um, they had a whole scene there dealing with, you know, creating a new element. Um, they weren't sure how they were going to handle that. They didn't know what a particle accelerator would look like. They knew vaguely that scientists were able to use these big machines to create, you know, new elements, but they didn't really understand, you know, some of the details about that. So I think that in the end, uh, the scientists that they worked with helped get at least a, a rough look you know, so that, you know, if you, a scientist could look at it and say, oh, yeah, that, he's building a particle accelerator to that particular plot point. Um, Caprica, of course, deals very, very closely with the notion of AI, with virtual worlds, um, with the meshing um, of, you know, can you download consciousness into a robot body, which is essentially the, uh, the thrust of the series. And we matched them with a person who works in AI and robotics and genetic algorithms at Northwestern University. His name's Malcolm MacGyver, and he's been their script consultant uh, for, the, for the duration of the series. And he pretty much helps them develop some of their themes, helps them get their science correct. If he feels they're going in a, in a wrong direction, he'll say, well, you can't do that, but you can do something interesting like this. And he has a philosophy background, too, so I think he's meshed well uh, with the writing team on that. And is it only for film and TV, or do you work like with novelists uh, as well? Or Well, in this day and age, comic books and novelists uh, and all these sorts of things feed into Hollywood, so they actually, the exchange will also work with the occasional sci-fi novelists. We've gotten a couple queries from, you know, aspiring sci-fi novelists that we've helped out on stuff. Um, in general, those people tend to be pretty plugged into the scientific community, unlike, you know, a lot of Hollywood producers, writers, and directors. Sci-fi 
people tend who sci-fi novelists tend to already really love science to a certain extent. <laughs> and so have you, you've gotten sort of sneak peeks at Thor and, and sort of upcoming movies like that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited about Thor. We're very excited about Tron legacy. That was one of the first consults that we did. Um, where again, you know, there was a lot of questions that they had about, you know, you know, what the world would be like inside a computer and how you would get in there and how you would get out and all these various things. And, uh, uh, we put together an entire think tank of world-class scientists for them. And they just brainstormed for two hours and answered, got a lot of their questions answered. Very curious to see how the movie turns out, but from the footage that I've seen, the 3D footage that I've seen, and I think thanks to Comic-Con, almost everyone has seen at this point, um, it, it's fabulous. It's going to look amazing. Well, so you mentioned Comic-Con, and, and I think I, I heard you say that you, uh, in another interview, that you've been to Dragon Con. I mean, do you go to many conventions like that, and sort of what kind of things do you do when you're there? Um, I, I go when I have a session, essentially. Um, I enjoy them. I actually, I really like them. I've only been to a few, uh, but I love the costumes. I love the community. I love it's the one place in the world where these people can dress up in their outfits. I have certain clothing, let's just put it this way, that I can only wear at a con. I have like a nice, cool full-length steampunk trench coat and the last comic-con i actually got one of those little hats with the goggles i'm all <laughs> set you know the next con i go to i'm going to be all steampunked out <laughs> but uh, at dragon con i saw this young girl who was a dead ringer for hit girl in, in kick-ass <laughs> i love seeing that i it, i don't know how she did it. she just had it was dead on it was a perfect costume uh and you're also you're a black belt right i mean um what are some of the things that you've noticed that books and movies tend to get right and get wrong about the way that they portray martial arts and martial artists well look there i have a black belt in jiu-jitsu and a particularly uh i think street savvy part of, of jiu-jitsu and you know a lot of the fight scenes are choreographed they're heavily choreographed there's certain techniques that are very showy and that you need to be pretty much a gymnast and very flexible to be able to pull off the high kicks the punches um, the fact that people only attack two at a time, they wait their turn rather than just kind of piling on. Even Bruce Lee in real life could never handle more than two attackers. And once you've got three or more people there, you've got a real problem. You're, you're very outnumbered. Um, but uh, I've actually also noticed a trend in, in film and television now towards these more realistic fight scenes. And I love them. Um, one of my favorite uh, climaxes was uh, climactic scenes was, uh, uh, I think, the, the tail end of season one of Veronica Mars, where her father goes at it with the killer of her best friend. And they're basically two middle-aged white guys who don't really fight a lot, battling that in a life or death situation. You know, one trying to save his daughter, the one trying to kill her. And um, it's not pretty. It's ugly. They're they're grunting. They're panting. They're getting tired. You know, and that is what a real fight is like. I mean, people do not have these fifteen minute athletic, you know, showy fights. But it's fun to watch. I'm a huge Jackie fan and Jet Li fan, and I love watching those beautifully choreographed fights. Uh, so your new book is called The Calculus Diaries: How Math Can Help You Lose Weight, Win in Vegas, and Survive a Zombie Apocalypse. Um, so did you use calculus to convince the publishers to buy the book or how'd that work? <laughs> I'm sure there was math involved in some way. Uh, they have their own internal algorithms for that. I wasn't sure they would actually want it, but they liked the idea um, uh, of someone who is not naturally good at math, someone who actually kind of doesn't like it very much tackling calculus and basically finding that it's really not that scary. It's actually kind of cool. It's not that I'm going to go out now and you know ace and ap calculus exam but i do have a deeper appreciation for math and i would hope that comes through in the book and will help other people kind of understand a little bit more what math is about where calculus fits in all of that and the fact that we think it's something that we only deal with in a classroom in a really you know esoteric way but in fact we're doing calculus all the time i mean calculus describes change in motion so if you think of anything any process in the world that deals with change in motion exercise, diet, um, catching a fly ball. Um, worms can do a form of calculus. They navigate by testing the differences in salt concentrations in soil. That's basically taking a derivative. Um, they're looking at a ratio and how that changes, you know, depends where they go to look for food. So when you do it in a classroom, in a textbook, you end up using these very kind of simplified versions of textbook problems. They're kind of boring, they're uninspiring. But they're solvable. Once you get into the real world, which is messy and complex, it gets a little more complicated. And I think textbooks shy away from some of those as a result. 
But I think as long as you're honest with students about the fact that, you know, you can do this with calculus, it'll be really hard. You'll need a computer for it, but it can be done. I, I think they would get it more. I, I think there's something to be said for helping them create their own calculus problems and go out and collect data and try and construct a problem and figure out what's relevant and what's not. And it's important for critical thinking. Believe it or not, one of the talks that I gave at DragonCon on the skeptic track was on calculus. It wasn't the most exciting topic for a lot of people, but there were zombies. Maybe that helps. Hmm. Yeah, so speaking of zombies, uh, so what can calculus teach us, about, teach us about how to survive a zombie apocalypse? Well, it's interesting. One of the scientists that uh, I, I uh, met through the course of the exchange um, is named Robert Smith. He's at the University of Ottawa. He studies how disease outbreaks spread, population dynamics. And that's essentially what the zombie problem is, particularly in, in uh, films like Zombieland. It's portrayed as like a form of mad cow disease gone wild that just spreads incredibly rapidly. Um, and this guy essentially used calculus and other forms of math to create this mathematical model. And once he had the model, he was able to plug in different, you know, strategies you know, to see how that would affect the zombie population. And I got to tell you, if you do nothing, the zombies will wipe you out in about four days. Uh, the human race cannot afford for zombies to be real. <laughs> <laughs> if we ally ourselves with the vampires, our chances are much better. Hmm. Uh, but really, the best approach is the Zombieland approach. It's lock and load. It's basically kill as many as possible, as quickly as possible, a short, sharp series of brutal attacks to, to cull the population as fast as possible. It's the only way you'll get rid of the outbreak. Okay, and, uh, and so what can World of Warcraft teach us about infectious disease? That is an interesting story. I actually, I, I love this story. Uh, World of Warcraft, several years ago, They've had a, a deliberate zombie epidemic as part of the uh, Wrath of the Lich King game. But in 2005, they had a dungeon that was designed specifically for advanced players. Um, and the demon that controlled it, Hakar, uh, would hit the players with this spell called Corrupted Blood. And essentially what happens is uh, periodically, every 30 or 40 seconds or so, they'll explode. There'll be a little like red explosion, like blood coming out of their avatar to go blah. Um, and what every time that happens, they lose a few life points. And so it becomes this ticking time bomb. They have to kill the demon and beat the level before their life points run out. It was fine for advanced players because they usually, but just to get there, you had to be a pretty strong player and you could generally figure it out. Um, there was a mistake in the algorithm and uh, some of the non-playable animal companions got infected, but they didn't show symptoms. And then they wandered off to lower levels of the game and infected lower-ranking players. And those players were not well-equipped to deal with it. And many of them, particularly the beginners, would be killed outright. Um, and panic ensued. And here's where the story gets interesting. An epidemiologist at Rutgers named Nina Pfefferman found out about this. She, and it turns out that she could get uh, a lot of these, these uh, players would take their play and post them online. You can find tons of YouTube videos of World of Warcraft sessions. Uh, she got access to a lot of those and she started studying the behaviors because one of the problems when you model epidemiological phenomena, you have to deal with the unpredictability of human behavior. You can only approximate using math how humans are going to react. And your model is only as good as your data. Your inputs are very important. So she said, if we can get better data of how people actually react, that would be fantastic. It's unethical to deliberately infect, you know, a, a, a population and watch, you know, watch what happens. But online, it's virtual. And this was completely unplanned. Um, and people reacted accordingly. And, of course, if you've ever met a gamer, you know that their avatars are an extension of themselves. And they care very deeply what happens. It's almost as if it's happening to them. So uh, she felt that their behavior rang true. And you it, was, it was great. You had people trying to help. You had people running away in panic and thereby spreading the disease, which actually happened during the Black Plague, during certain cholera outbreaks, all these things. Um, you had people deliberately infecting communities because they were bitter because they were dying. It was the typhoid Mary phenomenon. And apparently there was one poor dude that decided he was going to be the prophet of doom. He was going to stand on, this, on the steps of the town square and say the end is near and kind of narrate the carnage. So... Um, I'm very interested to see what she does with this. Uh, they've also been looking at uh, Second Life as a way of studying things like economics, behavioral economics, because you can get real-world data. You can actually see how humans behave. And granted, it's it's a virtual uh, situation, but it's a much better simulation than I think uh, trying to guess would be. Uh, so you're you're married to a physicist, right? Could you yes. talk talk about um, 
what role knowing him and his physicist buddies plays in you writing a book about math? <laughs> it was a big, big help. I would drag him to Disneyland, to Vegas, surfing in Hawaii, and I'd say, help me build a calculus problem out of this. There was a, th a thing I heard you say about the two of you watching waves on a beach, and he had a different way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah. It was shortly after we got engaged. It was one of those romantic, you know, sunsets over the water kind of thing uh, while we were driving down the Pacific Coast Highway. I think it was just outside of Malibu. And we pulled over to watch the sunset because that's what one does when one is newly engaged. And, uh, you know, he had his arms around me and I'm sitting there admiring, you know, the, the waves and, you know, the, the uh, setting sun kind of casting all these gorgeous colors and he leaned in and he said, wouldn't it be fascinating to take a Fourier transform of those waves? <laughs> and uh, a Fourier transform is just a calculus equation, basically, that takes a complex wave and breaks it down into its components parts so you can understand it a little bit better and rebuild it. And all digital signal processing, for instance, uses the Fourier transform. Uh, what you're doing right now with your podcast, the software that you're doing at some point is going to use a Fourier transform. <laughs> Um, so, uh, but I loved that because while I could appreciate the scene perfectly fine, it was lovely. Um, he saw something more. He saw everything that's hidden unless you speak nature's language and nature's language is math. Um, so he actually saw a reality underlying what I saw and it made me want to see those things too. And, uh, speaking of, uh, Vegas, uh, wasn't a lot of the development of math driven by gambling? Well, probability theory in particular was pretty much driven by wealthy patrons with gambling problems. Um, Galileo, for instance, wasn't at all interested in probability, but one of his patrons was, you know, an inveterate gambler and basically said, I'm paying you. I want you to answer this question for me. You know, why is it that in a game of this many dice, one number comes up more than others? And Galileo is the one that basically said the probability of something happening is equivalent to the different ways in which it can occur. Um, craps is based on this. You've got two dice and, uh, you've got only one way to make a two snake eyes, but you've got like five or six different ways to make a seven. So seven is the most common role and two is one of the least common roles. And it's not an accident that the casinos make sure that seven is the losing role once a game of craps gets underway. So Danica McKellar, who played Winnie on the TV show The Wonder Years, has published a series of books aimed at middle school girls that try to present math as sexy. Uh, what do you think about that approach? Yeah, I, I, I love Danica's books. I know she's been criticized for making math pink. <laughs> um, and there's something to that. Uh, there, there, but I also, I have nieces and my nieces are very different. One is kind of, you know, a little budding gothling and, and she likes comic books and anime and manga and, you know, horror. She's a little, she's a little geek girl after my own heart, really. Um, and the other is kind of an all-American girly girl, and, and she likes pink. Um, which one of those is Danica McKellar's book going to reach? Probably the more mainstream uh, of my nieces. Um, but that audience needs to be reached, and I think that what Danica is doing is extremely valuable and, and, and very useful. Um, it's not a bad thing to make math sexy. I mean, David Krumholtz, who played, uh, who played Charlie in Numbers, was sexy. You know, he was a good-looking mathematician. Um, certainly all of the people on CSI are very, very pretty, and they have sex lives and all that sorts of things. Uh, maybe we need to get over this notion, you know, that you can't be both. Um, Danica, I think, is very deliberately trying to reach a specific audience, and I think that she has just the right approach to reach that audience. Um, and it's an audience that there's really nothing else out there that exists for them. So I think it's important. And so uh, in addition to your books, you also have a blog. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what, what sorts of things you cover on there and sort of what it's meant to you? Yeah, it's called Cocktail Party Physics. And I started it when the Black Bodies book came out because what I should have done was named that, was titled that book Cocktail Party Physics because that's <laughs> what it is. It's just got a little dabbling. It's got some history. It's got some art, some literature, some culture, some science, and it's all kind of woven in together. That's kind of what the blog is. It's It's kind of this chatty cocktail party sort of conversation about things that are happening in science, uh, specifically physics, but it's not limited to that. Um, and, you know, sometimes I'll talk about, you know, education and outreach, almost never talk about politics, but occasionally we will um, uh, when it impinges on science policy. Um, so uh, it, it's supposed to be a fun read. I have a little avatar called Jean-Luc Picant. Uh, she's kind of like a faux French you know, kind of play on on uh, Jean-Luc Picard, obviously. And uh, 
brought on some co-bloggers a couple of years ago because I was getting so busy with the outreach, the Hollywood outreach, that I really needed some help on the blog. Um, I think I still probably write the vast majority of the posts, um, but it's nice getting help every now and then when I'm not expecting it. So like, what are some of the topics you've covered recently? Um, well, poker playing physicists, all the outtakes from the Discover article got put in the blog post. Uh, so there's a lot about game theory and the probabilities in poker on there. Um, the Vidara Hotel in Vegas had a death ray phenomenon, which is very, very similar to the Arch Archimedes myth, um, that he used mirrors essentially to set fire to Roman ships that were trying to invade the city of Syracuse. Um, the Mythbusters have tried to test that twice, and I think now they're going to test it one more time with President Obama being on board. I did a blog post about that. Um, I think I just put one up about uh, trebuchets and catapults. There was this really funny uh, video that's going around of a little tiny trebuchet that hurls little pies at insects and hits flies in the face. And I talked about the differences between these different medieval devices and the physics behind them, you know, in a very lighthearted, fun way, really. You can always quote Monty Python at the very end. Um, <laughs> medieval castle, you know, Monty Python's, Monty Python's Holy Grail, they actually use a trebuchet and various catapult things to uh, basically hurl cows uh, over onto Arthur and his knights. Okay, great. And so are there any other uh, recent or upcoming projects that you'd like to mention? Um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm back to writing. I'm looking at uh, what, what my next writing uh, book writing project will go to, is going to be, but mostly I'm just kind of happy and, and relieved to be back to writing full time and scaling back on some of the education and outreach that I've been doing for the last couple of years and kind of returning to my, to my true roots. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Jennifer Wallet for joining us on the show. Okay, and so, you know, as I was uh, editing that interview, uh, I just sort of noticed that, that Jennifer was mentioning all these TV shows that are on right now, and I'm not actually sure I've watched any of them. And that just sort of got me thinking about sort of television and, you know, what what's the role of, of, of TV in, in science fiction. And, you know, John and I were, uh, were interviewed recently for this, this podcast called Podcast Squared. And so, so sort of, you know, when he's talking about our show, he's sort of saying that this isn't like all the other sci-fi podcasts that talk about TV shows and movies. These guys talk about all this obscure stuff you've never heard of, like books and short stories and things. And it, was, it just kind of struck me because, you know, I really think of the books and the short stories as the absolute heart of the field and the, the film and TV stuff as being you know more peripheral, you know, and sort of just among people that I hang out with, you know, everybody knows you know, Paolo Bacigalupi and China Mieville and Kelly Link and, and people like that. And, you know, I don't know anybody who watches like Stargate Atlantis and stuff like that. It just sort of seems like, you know, like when I was a kid, I would watch lots of cartoons and, and TV shows and stuff. But sort of as I became a teenager, I, I kind of absorbed this this growing awareness that, that science fiction novelists, you know, were often embarrassed by science fiction on TV and, you know, that that the really exciting stuff was all going on in prose. And uh, I don't know, do, do, you, do you agree with that sort of assessment that that's how a lot of uh, science fiction novelists uh, have felt? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that was one of the things that I learned early on, like when I, uh, even when I just first went to my interview with uh, with Gordon Van Gelder to get the job at the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, which was, you know, the first job I had in the field. I went in prepared to talk to him, and I, I, I just assumed that uh, as the editor of a major science fiction fantasy magazine, he would, like, know everything about uh, science fiction movies and TV shows and whatever. And it's like, you know, he hadn't even seen Empire Strikes Back. And, uh, and you know, television, I think he'd, he'd even seen less. Like, I mean, he'd seen some movies, but, um, you know, he'd seen even less television. And, you know, like like you were saying, I mean, it's like, you know, he, he he's read all the all the prose fiction that you know you consider classic and whatnot, um, and he's very and he's very up to date on all the contemporary stuff as well. But yeah, as far as uh, television and film and everything, yeah, he, he wasn't as well versed, and I and I think that's fairly common. Um, you know, you start going to conventions and you and you talk to some of the pro writers, and a lot of them um, have that same view. Um, although there are fair, there is a fair number of, of pro writers who uh, who, who do um, have interest in television shows, and some of them end up writing, you know, the sort of novelizations or, or uh, media tie-in novels, and some of them end up doing other things. But um, yeah, I mean, there's there's certainly no uh, you, you certainly can't assume that any science fiction or fantasy writer um, actually likes you know science fiction and fantasy movies and TV, or at least not the great uh, the great majority of them. But, you know, like I uh, I went to the dentist uh, within the last couple of years and there was a new uh, hygienist uh, who they'd hired. You know, I told her, told her I write science fiction and she's like, oh, and she starts talking about Star Trek. And, hmm. 
you know, and, and it's just like, it's like that, you know, you, you meet people outside the field and that, you know, if they find out you write science fiction, they assume you just must be absolutely fanatical about Star Trek, you know? And I mean, I like Star Trek a lot. Uh, you know, I have fond memories of watching the original series reruns, uh, you know, af um, after school when I was a kid. But I mean, I, uh, you know, I, I watched one episode of Star Trek Enterprise and I was like, yeah, it's all right, but I don't feel like I need to watch <laughs> the show and I didn't watch any more of it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, I think a lot of this, this view that sci-fi TV is kind of bad, you know, is, is outdated to an extent. I mean, television has been getting a lot better you know, in the last 10, 10, 15 years or so, uh, you know, with networks like HBO and Showtime, you know, who have less restrictions about what they can show. And, you know, it, it's not so much episodic TV where the uh, episodes are all sort of interchangeable and you can show them in any order and nothing really changes that, you know, there, there are more of these big story arcs and, you know, telling long epic stories and things like that. And I mean, it had been, it had really seemed like, I don't know, five or six years ago, like I was really going to have to completely revised my opinion of science fiction on TV, because this is when we had, you know, Battlestar Galactica was going, and it was just fantastic, and Lost was going, and it was it was very, very good. And these were just, you know, shows that, that I was really excited about and that I really, really looked forward to watching. And then they both ended, ended in a very, how to say it, uh, disappointing way. I mean, they, they both sort of, in my opinion, kind of were revealed to be sort of shaggy dog stories in the end. And that really sort of did disillusion me all all over again about science fiction on television. You might want to explain what a shaggy dog story is for all those people who haven't read all the short stories that you have. I think only people who are deeply ingrained in science fiction and read short stories and whatnot have ever heard that term. Oh, all right. Well, yeah, I mean, a shaggy dog story is a, a very a sort of overly long, complicated story uh, that never really goes anywhere. And it just kind of leads up to a dumb joke or you know, just, just ends in a, ends with nothing really uh, happening at the end. And, and so that's, that's really, you know, how I felt about the, the series finale of, of Battlestar Galactica and of Lost. And those shows, it seems like they both kind of, it's almost eerie how, how easy it is to draw parallels between them kind of falling apart. They sort of fell apart in the same exact ways. I mean, Battlestar Galactica to an extent, but Lost in particular, you kind of always had the feeling that they were making it up as they went along, and they didn't really know, know where it was going. You know, Battlestar Galactica, it wasn't until maybe like two and a half years or so that I, I really was sure that they didn't know where this was going. Um, and Lost, I was sure that they, you know, almost from the start, that they didn't know where it was going, but it was, it was still fun. And then every once in a while, you know, I, I would sort of give up on it, and then people would say, no, no, it gets really good again, and I would, you know, start watching again, and it would, it would, it would get really good again. And and sometimes I would sort of wonder, maybe they do actually know where this is going. But, uh, you know, in the end, obviously they didn't. Um, kind of when I gave up on Battlestar Galactica was when Billy died. You know, that was the, the biggest point. I, I sort of gave up on it. And then people convinced me to watch it again in preparation for the finale. But uh, that was like a point in the story where you were just like, wow, this is obviously not supposed to happen. I think the actor got another job or something. So they had to kill off the character and it just did not fit into the story at all. And it was sort of the same thing on Lost, right? Like the um, uh, Mr. Echo, right? It wasn't it was a similar sort of situation where, because of the actor, they had to kill off the character in a way that you know just did not seem like it fit the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, in the case of Mr. Echo, like I mean, they were clearly setting him up to be a very important figure in the storyline, and to kill him off, to have to kill him off, kind of ruined that whole part of the arc. And uh, I mean, ultimately. You know, uh, I don't know if you remember uh, in Lost, you know, that when they had the original survivors of 815 and then they discovered the tailies, you know, the people who were in the tail section of the plane. And so they landed in this other part of the island. It's like, so that was awesome when that when that first happened. And like, you know, they were discovering them, and we were spending whole episodes like following them. And that was really interesting. But then like they all like disappear. I mean, it's like they all die or whatever. Like, I mean, I think they all got killed, actually. But, I mean, um, they all are off the show before long. I mean, it's like um, like none of them factor into the, the denouement of the show. It's like they're all long gone. So it's like, well, what was the point of them? It's You know, it's like, oh, well, that was some extra filler to keep, you know, to help stretch the show out six seasons or whatever. Um, yeah, but I'm with you totally on Lost. Like, I mean, from, like, the first episode, the first, within the first three episodes, like, I watched the first three episodes initially, and I quit. Um, and it's your fault that I watched it because <laughs> saying how awesome it was. And so I was like, okay, I'll give it another shot. Cause I mean, I didn't hate it. I just, I was watching it and I was like, this is interesting, but there is no way any of this is going to make any sense. And I was right. It doesn't make any sense. 
But, uh, you know, I, I admit, I, you know, once I gave it a shot, I, I did really get into it. And, and it was one of those shows that, um, you know, you watch it on DVD. You better not have anything else to do that day because you're, I mean, you're just going to shotgun them one after another. And you're not going to be able to stop watching them because it's like the way the episodes end. It's just like, oh, my God, I want to see what happens next. And, uh, I mean, I, you know, I felt that way about the show for pretty much the whole run. But, man, the, uh, you know, there was a lot, there was some rough patches there. And, uh, you know, especially the last season was pretty uneven. And, yeah, the finale was just complete nonsense, I thought. I mean, it's really disappointing. Yeah, I um, guess we'll, we'll, we should give a spoiler warning that we're going to talk about the finales. So if you yeah. haven't, uh, you know, if you don't want it spoiled, you should, you know, stop listening now. <laughs> but uh, You can consult the show notes, at which point you can find out that it's safe to return. So we don't want you to have to miss the whole show. But, I mean, both – and, again, there, there are these weird parallels between – the finale, the series finale of Lost and the series finale of Battlestar Galactica, because in both cases you had this story that was kind of this creepy science fiction story. It was always sort of spooky and weird. And then in the end, it turns out to be like the last episode, it becomes this sort of like there's angels and the divine plan. And it's just very saccharine and schmaltzy. And, you know, it, it was just like, it didn't fit at all in my view with, with any of the rest of the show, you know, and I would have much rather had, particularly lost i mean so many of the um season finales for that show were great and they were so spooky and i just saw that as a spooky show and i thought it should have had a spooky finale you know yeah the lost finale was especially small too <laughs> oh and um i don't know i Although, think I, I think battlestar galactic was actually more offensive to like intellectually well and another thing i, I swear i i think i heard both people from both shows say this that you know they got to the end and we're basically kind of like, I don't know, from a plot perspective, how to how I can possibly wrap this up. But that doesn't matter because the show, it's all about the characters. Oh, yeah, I know. What a cop out that is, right? Um, actually, I mean, you know, if you want to be sane, if you want to keep your sanity um, and you watch any of Battlestar Galactica at all, like, don't ever listen to anything Ron Moore says. <laughs> like, don't listen to any interviews with him. Don't read any interviews with him. He's infuriating. And I mean, it, it just never seemed at all to me that either of those shows were all about the characters because it always seemed like the characters changed their personalities and agendas a hundred percent almost from scene to scene depending on the needs of the plot you know yeah 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 i know i've certainly heard a lot of people criticizing battlestar for that um and uh you know to a lesser extent lost as well but yeah sure um yeah that was certainly a problem and so yeah that that kind of does defeat that argument um, you know, I mean, it, it was more surprising to me that Battlestar went the way it did. I mean, obviously, um, as people have pointed out, they've got the God stuff in there all along, right? And so it's like, oh, well, you know, you can't really complain too much when the God stuff comes in at the end. But it's like, well, you know, yeah, I can. Because, <laughs> you know, it's like, it doesn't make sense. But I mean, even if you say, like, you know, there were themes of religion from the start, like, so therefore you can't complain when religion plays a role in the story at the end. I mean... Like, that's fine as far as it goes, but, like, like Starbuck turns out to be an angel and she, like, dis disappears. Like, there's just, I, I, I just do absolutely not believe anyone who says that if you go back from the beginning and watch it, like, it all makes so much sense now, knowing that that's how it's <laughs> going to turn out. Give me a break, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I remember, you know, uh, you know, Dave and I and some of our friends all watched this episode together because uh, we were all excited about it. And uh, so it was about, I don't know eight or 10 of us and, and we're all sitting around the TV watching. And when that happened, just like, Oh man, just the audible size of uh, or the audible um, exasperation in that room was sort of astonishing, you know, cause like, I mean, we're not the sorts that will talk during a, a, a movie or a TV show or whatever, but just like, you know, we couldn't restrain our frustration with what was happening. I mean, cause actually the first half of the episode, the, 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 the finale is like two hours. And so the first half of it, pretty awesome and then like i think i i tell people like if you're going to watch it to the end go ahead and watch it but then stop watching after an hour because like nothing ha that happens in that second hour is going to make you happy but yeah that that when 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 starbuck just disappears like that that's like that was the worst i think um and i mean i do have i do have a certain amount of sympathy for tv writers because i mean they're just you know just as a as a prose fiction writer there's just so much that you can take for granted Whereas when you actually have to put it on television, it, it just must be a nightmare. I mean, you know, like uh, like we were talking about in Lost, a couple of the things. And like, I guess, you know, the writer's strike happened in the middle of one of the seasons. And so, you know, they had, they had, had this much bigger story planned out. And then they kind of had to, you know, truncate it uh, abruptly. And I remember uh, watching one of those bonus features with uh, for Battlestar Galactica where they were saying that, you know, the, um, the Cylon Centurions, the big 
steel robot things are so expensive to do the computer graphics for that they can only put in like eight minutes of them per episode or something. And just like as a writer, that must be so frustrating where, you know, you have a script and then they're like, nope, sorry, your script calls for, you know, 11 minutes of robots and we can only afford eight minutes of robots. You're going to have to cut out some, you know, you're going to have to cut out a scene or two. Um, I mean, George Martin was talking about that, right? I mean, that was one of the reasons he couldn't stand to work in Hollywood because everything he was writing, they would always say that to him about it. After the Battlestar finale, like I was, uh, I was tweeting angry tweets about Ron Moore and how he was dead to me. And, uh, (laughs) and, you know, basically I intended to never watch anything that he was on again. But um, actually, you know, um, I guess shortly after Battlestar ended, he had a, a pilot virtuality, I think it was called. Um, and it aired on Fox and it was like a sort of two hour movie pilot thing. And did you, did you see this Dave? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it was amazing. It was like great. And I was like, God, I was so disappointed. It's like Fox totally killed it. It's like, um, it's like they didn't even give it the firefly treatment. They just like, they killed it. Like when it was still in the cradle. I mean, it's like they aired the, the pilot. There was no promotion for it. Like I, I didn't know it was going to be on until like the day before. Cause like I saw somebody tweeting about it and, uh, you know, so they aired it one day with no promotion, like Friday night. And it was like in summer or something. It was like, so it wasn't like the time of year you would expect to see a new show launching. And so it's like, it basically had no shot. And uh, it was just really disappointing because it was like, it really had a lot of promise. I thought it was really well written. Um, although I, I have to say, uh, maybe it was just sparing me some uh, emotional turmoil down the road, uh, uh, preventing me from having to get invested in another show that uh, Ron Moore might ruin down the line. <laughs> but, uh, you know. I don't know. It was, it was disappointing, though. I mean, because, like, you know, there isn't really any science fiction on the air right now that I'm I'm interested in. Uh, certainly nothing uh, that takes place in space. Um, or if there is, maybe you guys should let us know. I don't know. I mean, I, uh, I've i sampled. I, I mean, I basically I try to I try to sample every new science fiction or fantasy show that comes on. And I mean, most of them I don't get past. I don't even finish watching the first episode because, you know, I don't know. I think um, I think working in science fiction and fantasy or just reading a lot of it and, and writing it in your case, you know, it's like when we, we spend so much time reading that stuff, we, we tend to get like sort of a higher standard um, for, for our science fiction and fantasy. And it's like everything that you watch on or o- almost everything you watch on, on film and television. It's like, it's just so many years and maybe decades behind the sophistication of the stuff that you find in prose. And so it just makes it a lot harder to, you know, sort of get into it when you, when you're, you know, when you have that sort of experience with science fiction. I was going to say, you know, another advantage that, you know, books have over film and TV is that you don't have to deal with the, uh, the characters giving uh, off-screen interviews, you know, and it's, it's really hard for me to enjoy a lot of these TV shows because I, I, I can't help running across these interviews with the actors and just finding out what twits they are. <laughs> and, you know, it makes it really hard to like, continue to like their character. And I mean, the, the, the thing that you see all the time is they'll interview, it seems like every fantasy and science fiction TV show, they'll interview the actors and, and a bunch of the actors will be like, well, this is a TV show that takes place in outer space, 200 years in the future with robots, but it's, it's not really science fiction yeah. because it deals with serious themes. Right. Right. And oh, yeah, Star, Starbuck did that. And oh, it just, it just makes you so angry at these morons that, you know, I know, I know what you mean. I mean, I, uh, you know, I used to write for Sci-Fi Wire, which is a website of the Sci-Fi Channel. Now it's called Blaster with no E. Um, but, uh, you know, and I was doing all these interviews with authors. And so I was, I was regularly checking the site because I'd see when my interviews go up. And, and I, I mentioned that because that's the only reason I would look at the site because every time that I went to look at the site as a fan to go see what news there was, there was always some interview with some idiot like that saying that stupid stuff. But, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I guess, like, I'm, I'm assuming Nathan Fillion doesn't feel that way. I don't know. He seems like he's pretty well-embraced geek culture. But, see, that's see the savvy actor will just run with that. You know, it's like, hey, the, the geek community loves Nathan Fillion, you know? And it's so, um, you know, which is Captain Mal from Firefly. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that more people don't do that. And it's like they'll willfully just come out and, and alienate, like, a whole fan base when it's, like, you know, you realize, like, to promote your show, you're going to have to go to, like, Comic-Con and stuff, and, like, you're, you're going to be meeting these people in, in person, and it's, like, you know, why would you want to purposely go out and alienate them? I mean, maybe it's just that they're, they want mainstream acceptance so badly that they're willing to, you know, to cast off the fans that actually want to love them um, in, in, the, in the effort to gain those people who probably never will. Yeah. So, yeah. So if there are any actors listening to this or aspiring actors, please never, never do this in an interview. Just please, please try to understand how stupid and 
intellectually dishonest and offensive it is, you know, to uh, when your show is sort of, you know, there's this sort of long subculture of people who've worked really, really hard to, to develop these ideas. And then your show uses them and sort of, you know, disses them at the same time uh, and, and sort of lies about where, where these idea, ideas are coming from. It, it's really insulting. Um, there, there was actually one instance I remember that I didn't mind when the actress did it because uh, it was Hillary Swank saying about about the core. <laughs> yeah, fine, you know, if you want to say it's not science fiction, go ahead. Because I mean, it's like, uh, as we've mentioned on the show before, uh, it's like what like one of the worst examples of science in a movie ever. Yeah, um, yeah. Back in episode ten, we interviewed Tom Rogers, who wrote um, the book "Insultingly Stupid Movie Physics," and he identified it as the worst science ever to appear in a movie. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you know, but speaking of, speaking of, you know, actors talking about shows and whatever, like that's one of the things I always kind of, I, I always, uh, really appreciated, um, Star Trek The Next Generation for is that it seems like most of the cast, at least, um, never really did that. Like, but you know, like, like Patrick Stewart, I remember one time he did an interview and somebody was, uh, asking him about Star Trek and, and they, and the guy, the interviewer said something really insulting about, um, Star Trek fans or whatever. And Patrick Stewart just called him out right in the interview. And he's like, oh, come on now, you know, that's not, you know, that's quite rude or, or something like that, you know, but it's just like, he just, that's like, that is awesome. Like, thank you, Patrick Stewart. But I mean, there does seem, it does seem like in Hollywood, it's hard to make a science fiction show and call it a science fiction show because of, I don't know, uh, you know, that Hollywood executives are all snorting so much coke. They uh, <laughs> haven't noticed that, you know, out of the 25 highest grossing movies, like 22 of them are, are science fiction and fantasy movies or something. Mm-hmm. But um, I have heard people say that, like, you know, they want to do science fiction shows and they have to, like, pretend it's something else. Yeah. Um, like, I think I've heard J.J. Abrams maybe say that about um, Alias, that he really wanted to do a science fiction show. But he had to, like, pitch it as, like, a spy thriller show. And then, you know, once it's already in production, then you can sort of start introducing the science fiction stuff and gradually make it more and more of a science yeah. fiction show. Um, actually, Alias, speaking of Alias, that's, you know, that's one of the reasons why I quit on Lost pretty early until you convinced me to keep watching it, because Alias started awesome. Like, the, the two-hour pilot of Alias is amazing. It's, like, amazing. I was so stunned by that. And then, um, but then, like, it just, it goes downhill. Like, you know, within the first season, I think I was already like, okay, I'm done. But um, it was really disappointing when that thing went down the tubes for me. But I mean, I know a lot of other people liked it and it did last a while. But um, yeah, I'm I'm a little dubious about him. That's one of the reasons why I haven't gotten into Fringe. It's just like, you know, how many times am I going to let that guy burn me? <laughs> but it was kind of the same. It was kind of the same strategy they used for Lost. You know, it starts out with very... Uh sort of, you know, understated science fiction elements. And then by season four, they're like bouncing around in time and all this stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe what they really, maybe they just really wanted to make, the show they really wanted to make was Touched by an Angel. <laughs> and they, they couldn't do it. So they had to like make us fool us into thinking it was a science fiction show for like five years. And then, you know, <laughs> in the last episode, they could make the show they always really wanted to make. And another problem I often have with, with sort of fantasy and science fiction TV and movies is that the people making them seem not to have read any of the fiction, any of the you know books and stories that seems like they've only seen other TV and movies. And so they have this very shallow grasp of what the genre is capable of. And I, uh, nothing sort of drove this home to me more. I was watching the special features for, uh, for Farscape and this guy comes on and he says, you know, this show, you know, is we're hoping to have like all the best stuff from science fiction all in one show, everything from Star Wars to Star Trek and everything in between. You know, and it's like, you know, it's like saying, you know, we hope to have every color from gray to dark gray. <laughs> uh, it's like they just have no conception of what's out there. And it, it's really a shame because, you know, when they get, you know, novelists and short story writers involved with TV and film, I mean, some of the results have been really, really amazing. When I, uh, like when I was a kid, uh, you know, like you mentioned George R. R. Martin, George R. R. Martin was involved with this Twilight Zone revival um, in the 80s that I used to watch as a kid. And man, I just love that show so much. There were so many crazy ideas. And I really, I was saying, you know, I was saying sort of about how TV doesn't lend itself well to science fiction often because of the budget and, and stuff. And I think another reason is because, you know, science fiction and fantasy sort of thrives on newness and, and novelty in a series. You have the same characters episode after episode after episode, and there's only so much that they can change. And um, whereas an anthology show like Twilight Zone or Outer Limits um, or, or Tales from the Crypt, uh, I really love those shows because, man, anything can happen in those shows. You know, the characters can turn out to be someone completely 
unexpected and char characters can all die, you know, you know, who, who even knows. And, uh, so like a couple of, the, did you ever watch this, this Twilight Zone? Uh, I don't know if I saw that era. I've certainly seen like, you know, the original Rod Serling Twilight Zones and I've seen, uh, and I saw the more recent, um, uh, you know, reinvention of it in the, what, early aughts there with the uh, Forrest Whitaker as the host. Um, and I, I remember, I remember thinking like, you know, okay, well, I'll give this a shot. I'm excited that they're bringing it back. And then like, it was like one of the earliest episodes, like the first or second episode, it was like a go back in time and kill Hitler when he's a baby uh, plot. And I'm like, ah, oh, what again? Come on. So you pick one of the horriest cliches uh, and, and put it in one of your earliest episodes. But uh, no, I, I haven't. Uh, I don't know if I've seen any of those, but I may have. Um, yeah, the, the, I think it, none of the ones since none of the revivals since that have been any good that I've seen. But um, the one in the 80s, man, some of them were really good uh, and they've really stuck with me. Like there was this one where, um, you know, there's this this kid and his parents are always bickering and uh, he asks them to take him to the to this theme park. And so they go to this theme park and you sort of go through the gates and you kind of get separated. You know, they take the kid off one way and the parents off another way. And he kind of gets led down this hallway and, and all the parents whose kids have taken them to this theme park are all kind of like in cells, you know, with, with glass. And, and they're all sort of imprisoned in this theme park. And how it works is you take your bad parents, you know, and uh, you get to pick new parents. And the, this, the parents kind of, uh, they have, they learn their lesson by being imprisoned in this, uh, in this theme park and only uh, when they, uh, you know, have learned to, to get along with each other and, and be nicer uh, do they have a chance of having uh, uh, another kid come along and pick them to, to be to be your new parents. And that was, man, that was really creepy. And I've always really remembered that one. There's this one too, this woman discovers a, uh, like a, a necklace in her backyard while she's gardening. And she discovers that it has the ability to freeze time. And then at the end of the episode, there's like a, you know, a nuclear war breaks out and she freezes time and she goes outside and there's just, you know, like this missile hanging in the air above her house. And so if she unfreezes time ever again, that that's, that's the end. And so it's just such a like creepy open-ended ending where you just sort of, I spent so much time like thinking about like, what would you do in that situation? You know, you know, could you keep time frozen for decades and evacuate the cities, you know, do some, somehow disarm the missiles, who knows, you know, and that's the kind of thing you can have in an, in a thought in an anthology show like that. Yeah, I, I just don't, I don't really foresee too many more of them being attempted just because, uh, you know, like none of the recent ones have made much of a go of it. I mean, there was the Twilight Zone, you know, with Forrest Whitaker there that, you know, didn't last very long. And uh, more recently, um, you know, Showtime and ABC, one did Masters of Horror and one did Masters of Science Fiction, um, and, you know, both by the same sort of producers. And, uh, but they had like a master of horror like director so they had like you know john carpenter and um uh well they had like john carpenter and like stork gordon who directed a bunch of um you know hp lovecraft films and um people like that like so they were the master but then they also adapted a lot of um short stories from masters uh, of there and and uh, and they did the same thing with the science fiction one so so you know it, it had promise you know because it because it had that sort of built-in idea of potential star power associated with the episodes but you know even then it didn't didn't um, last long although i mean you know i i can't really say that i i was terribly surprised i mean it wasn't all that great and i mean it was like um that was a show i really wanted to succeed i really wanted to like because you I mean like you i i really like the idea of an anthology show but uh yeah i don't know i i, I don't know what the answer is to to trying something like that i mean uh to me the closest that we that we've seen to like what seems like a, a really feasible anthology show was that show sliders. Did you ever see that? Um, maybe once or twice. Yeah. So, I mean, if, for those who aren't familiar with it, it was like, it was basically, it's a parallel world show. So there's, there's this group of people um, like somebody invents this technology that allows you to travel from one, from our world to other alternate earths. And, uh, and so they can't really control the device and they, and sort of, it's a sort of a random group of people that get sucked through this thing. And, and so they're trapped. So it's sort of like quantum leap where they're going from, from scenario to scenario. But the thing about it is like, while that's not an anthology show, obviously it does allow you to do like almost anything from week to week, but then you have the same characters in the show. So it's like, you have the advantage of a, of a regular show where you have the same characters that people can get invested in and the characters can grow and develop. But then you also have the advantage of sort of an anthology show a bit because at the end of each episode, they jump out of the world that they were in and they end up in a new one. There's one I remember quite vividly. Um, they, they end up in this world where 
they ended up in this in this one world and and you know they don't have any money or anything and they can't buy anything but then they they find out that there's these ATMs that they can go to and they can just ask for as much money as they want and it'll just give them however much money they want and so like everybody thinks they're crazy when they're doing that but it turns out it's like what they didn't understand is that for every amount of money they get they're being entered into this lottery and the lottery is being used to you know control the population so you know, if you, if you enter, um, if you, if you, you know, if you take out money, then you get more chances entering into the lottery. And then if your name is chosen, then you're one of the people who gets put to death in order to, you know, keep the population under control. And so, and so, I mean, obviously that's a, an idea that's been used before. I mean, it's obviously riffing off Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. Um, but, uh, you know, I thought it was pretty well done. And I mean, admittedly, I haven't seen it since I was like 15 or something. So maybe it's not as good as I remember, but. I remember really liking it for a while, but then I, I know it did go off the rails at some point where they started having sort of um, kind of dumber, much dumber plots happening from week to week. Well, I mean, and speaking of George R. R. Martin again, I mean, he had been developing uh, a series called Doorways, oh, yeah, right. which was the same exact premise. Hmm. And then Sliders came out, you know, uh, and, and so people have asked him, you know, what, is, what was Doorways? What was it going to be? And he's like, well, it was going to be Sliders, except good. Ha! <laughs> Um, but I think it's too bad. That's too bad. I, I would have much rather seen George Martin's take on it. But I think it was one of these like sort of suspicious things where, you know, something is, uh, you know, is in development and then something, you know, really suspiciously similar to it comes out, you know, like the same thing happened with Babylon five, uh, and deep mm-hmm. space, you know, Star Trek, deep space nine. Yeah. Um, like the other like anthology episode show episode, I really want to draw people's attention to was like the best outer limits. There was also, you know, there was also a, uh, a sort of a relaunch of the outer limits in the nineties. Um, and the best episode of that, that I saw was this one called quality of mercy, but it's, uh, there's this sort of star pilot from earth and he's been and earth is at war with, uh, sort of creepy looking aliens and he's been captured and, uh, they're holding him kind of in this slimy cell and taking him out periodically to be interrogated. And, uh, but they can't get the information they want out of him because he's sort of been conditioned to be, uh, you know, immune to torture. Then he, uh, he finds, they throw another prisoner, uh, in with him, who's this female cadet, and then the aliens start taking her away. And each time they bring her back, they've taken off a piece of her body and replaced it with an alien, with an alien part. And so she comes back, and she has like a this sort of creepy, scaly alien hands and like a creepy, scaly alien eye and stuff. And piece by piece, she's being uh, turned into one of the aliens. Yeah, I've seen a, I've seen a bunch of those Outer Limits. That I think that era that you're talking about, the Sci-Fi Channel was uh, airing a bunch of them at some point, and I, and I caught several of them. You know, they adapted James Patrick Kelly's story, uh, Think Like a Dinosaur. Um, did you ever see that one? No, I never. I've, I've read the story. I never saw that, though. Yeah, no, I, if I recall correctly, the adaptation was actually pretty good. I mean, um, you know, like I, I'd love to see, you know, more things, more more of these anthology shows and more of them, you know, specifically adapting short, short stories. Because, I mean, you know, I think if you're if you're going to start with something that's already proven to be good, you know, like maybe pick award-winning things, you know, it's like, so there's some consensus there that a lot of people who know science fiction think that these things are good. You know, you start from that standpoint and then you, you know, sort of adapt it. Then, I mean, you're more likely to come up with something that's actually going to be good or, you know, better yet, just hire some science fiction and fantasy writers to write your shows. You know, I mean, they could write original stuff for a TV show. Yeah. Well, for Outer Limits, they also, they also adapted George R. R. Martin's Sand Kings. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is one of my favorite short stories. The adaptation, it's okay. Um, yeah, yeah, I didn't see that one. But uh, you know, definitely read the story though. The story is absolutely yeah. fantastic. Yeah, no, the, story, the story is amazing. I mean, one uh, one thing I, I I saw this this post recently. I thought was really interesting. But this this guy was I don't know. He he works uh, in Hollywood, I think. But he was sort of saying, and I I had never really this had never really occurred to me before. But you know, every time I mean, essentially every time there's a science fiction show, it gets canceled usually right away. And then there's a big letter writing campaign, you know, of the fans trying to trying to save it. Uh, I mean, this happened with Farscape. It happened with uh, Firefly. But this guy was saying that by the time a show gets canceled, it's really too late for a letter writing campaign. That by that point, the studio couldn't change their minds, even if they wanted to, because the actors have all been hired for other shows and the sets have all been broken down and dumped in dumpsters and stuff. And so really, the time to start a letter writing campaign is the instant you discover a new show that you like. You know, start writing, start your letter writing campaign then and try to, you know, show the uh, studio how popular it is. So, yeah, I would encourage people if you uh, if you find a new particularly science fiction show that's good, you know, start, you know, start promoting it as much as you can uh, right away. You know, don't don't wait until you hear it's uh, it's been canceled. 
All right, so well, that's basically our show. Um, we have a couple of little announcements um, that uh, friends of ours have asked us to make. Um, so my friend Emily asked me to mention uh, the North American Discworld Convention 2011. It's a fan-run convention held to celebrate the works of Sir Terry Pratchett, um, who is awesome. And it's happening in Miss, uh, Madison, Wisconsin, July 8th through 11th. Um, you know, guest of honor is Mr. Terry Pratchett himself. Um, more information is at the website. It's uh, nadwcon.org. And um, other guests include Stephen Baxter, Esther Friesner, um, Jennifer Brell, who's uh, Terry Pratchett's editor, and several other people and uh, who are all wonderful, I'm sure. Oh, and so the other the other announcement is um, the fabulous Starship Sofa, the Hugo Award-winning Starship Sofa podcast, is having a writer's workshop. If you want to learn more, go to starshipsofa.com slash shop slash workshops slash writers. Um, and on the website there, it's actually called the Holodeck Writers Workshop. Um, I wonder if uh, Star Trek knows about that. Uh, but... Um, Let's see, the guests they have featured here are Gregory Frost, uh, James Patrick Kelly, who we mentioned earlier, uh, Michael Swanwick, Mercurio D. Rivera, and Sheila Williams, who's the editor of Asimov Science Fiction. Yeah, and that's, uh, so that's our show. Um, Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is up to 27 ratings at iTunes, so thanks to everyone who's rated it so far. And can we make it up to 28? Maybe we'll find out. Uh, we would really appreciate it if uh, people would do that. And, of course, uh, we're accepting donations, as always. Uh, you can do that by going into our website at geeksguideshow.com and clicking on the donation button. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of io9. For this episode's show notes, to subscribe to this podcast, or for more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.